my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. All right, it's Radio Mysterioso. Again, as promised, as planned, as promised, uh, crackpot historian Adam Gorightly is here with us to discuss the re release. No, it's a revised edition, or is it re-release? Updated, revised, re-release. You gotta talk okay. right into the microphone. But, yes, all of Don't those. Don't be scared of it. Edition of Shadow Over Santa Susanna. Um, Black Magic Mind, Mind Control, Control and the Manson Family, Family Mythos. Oh, 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 oh. Here on Radio Mysterio. So tonight we've been talking to Adam about that and other essential uh, miscellaneous ravings and yammerings. And plus some rare audio uh, that uh, Adam has kindly brought along to play for us of uh, Charlie himself and uh, bands that have covered Manson's music, uh, Parole Hearing Rantings, you said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that's a good song, too. I like that song. That was going to be the original, I mean, uh, Radio Mysterioso theme music. Messer Chutes? No, it's not. It's David something. I don't know who did it. I like it. <laughs> It was going to originally be on the uh, Rhino uh, science fiction uh, box set, the Brain in a Box. Nice. Anyway, enough of that aside. The uh, book, uh, Shadow Over Santa Susanna, uh, somebody today uh, called it the one of the big three of the Manson books, that <laughs> being Helter Skelter um, by Vincent Bugliosi, um Ed Sanders, The Family, and uh, now this one by Adam Go Rightly. And uh, although he's embarrassed for me to say, I agree with that. Um, and it's also one of these things where a, a friend writes a book and you feel like you have to force yourself to say nice things about it. I didn't actually have to force myself because I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable and, and well-written book. And plus it's kind of written in the, the uh, argot, the... Uh, Whatever you want to call it, the uh, the slang of the of the time, actually. Mm -hmm. Indeed, yeah, the Ed Sanders kind of style. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I didn't have to go out and tell you know force myself. This is a pretty good book. <laughs> you should all read it because uh, it is very good. And uh, Mike Marinacci, author of Mysterious California. Yes, he was uh, nice enough to write the intro. Yes, uh, he says so too. Ran into Mike uh, originally at Robert Anton Wilson Memorial a couple of years ago and introduced each other. He goes, "Oh man, you're the he wrote the that's the best freaking book on the Manson family." And so you know, got to be friends with him. And when this edition came out, I thought, 
Shit, get a new intro. And yeah, who better to write yeah. the new intro? And Unless he, you get Andrew, Ed Sanders, who's dead. Or Ed, Ed Sanders isn't dead. Oh, he isn't? I no, thought he was no. dead. Uh-uh. No. Heck no. Why didn't you get him instead of Mike? God. <laughs> no, Mike's much better. I've tried to get a hold of uh, Sanders in the past. No luck. Oh, okay. He's hiding out in Woodstock, New York. Oh, is he? Yeah. I know a couple people live there. Eugenia Macer's story bumps into him now and then. Oh, really? Yeah. Does she know him? Yeah, they know each other. Oh, Apparently, okay. he's been involved in, there's a bunch, a few different Manson movie projects going on, and one of them, they were going to use uh, Sanders the Family, so. Right. He's still out there doing stuff. Why did you want to write this book in the first place? What are you interested in Manson for? For some people, it's a pretty macabre thing to be interested in. Mm-hmm, Why is mm-hmm. it so fascinating to get, you? Um it sounds like a normal show now. Why do you like What did you write this book for? But Inici- go ahead. Initially, I got interested. Uh, one of the things was the old uh, Helter Skelter movie back in the day, made for TV movie back in 76. Oh, yeah, with jo- Steve Railsback. There you go. Yeah. And uh, I've seen that recently. In retrospect, it comes across as pretty dated and hokey, but Railsback was great in it. And some of those uh, lines he uttered in there, you know, like... Uh, I'm the devil, and the devil always shaves his head. Or <laughs> you can't, you can't kill me. I'm already dead. And, you know, <laughs> when I saw that shit, it made me uh, bust up at the time. I, we got friends Joe and Pete here. I probably saw that movie. We were at the uh, Bison's place and over beer and uh, other inebriants. Uh, <laughs> saw that back in the day, so that kind of got me into it. And I was into the whole counterculture. You know the Music, uh, I got turned on from my brothers, The Doors and Stones and Beatles, and got into the whole counter-cold anti-war movement, uh, interested in the uh, history of psychedelics and the Manson family, you know, with all that civil unrest of the 60s. They were right in the middle of all that shit. And out of that came, you know, Charlie's family, a group that uh, somehow into sex, drugs, and and making music as well, and uh, somehow transformed into a bunch of murderous zombies. So it's a fascinating story. And um, and then in the uh, late '80s or so, I was into the whole zine scene and a lot of the mags, like the mag you were doing, excluded middle, talking about conspiracies and psychedelics. And I started hearing, I think it was from May Brussel. It was one of the first ones that there were these different conspiracies uh, surrounding the Manson family having to do what hers was that there was some type of military mind control. Well, this is good. You're going to move it into the what's the black magic, what's the mind control. Yeah. And all these stuff. weird things I'd heard over the years. So I started looking into all these conspiracies, and that's primarily was what I was going to write about initially with the book. But then as I progressed into the thing, at some point it needed more historical context so i kind of told the whole tried to tell the whole story of manson growing up the evolution of the family then weaved in all that conspiratorial uh, stuff what oh you stopped what's the uh what's with the you know what we could go on for hours probably on the the uh subtitle black magic what does black magic have to do with the manson family well charlie has all those crazy occult uh connections such as, such as, um, I'm I'm going to be dumb on this interview okay. and try and try and actually make it for an audience that hasn't read the book, doesn't know a hell of a lot about Manson, 
and uh, would like to hear more about the book and read it, uh, this comprehensive uh, look at the, this period of history. The first official Manson family murder was the Gary Hinman murder, which happened like... Uh, right up near my old house. Yeah, July... It's like July 26, I'm thinking, which was a couple weeks before the Tate LaBianca and uh, murders. And uh, Beausoleil is an interesting character. Bobby Beausoleil. Talks about all yeah. the... In the book, I talk about all the uh, connections, and he had... Occult connections, keep on, sorry. and he had connections <laughs> with uh, rock music. Uh, a little background on Beausoleil, he showed up in the L.A. scene, and he actually played for an early version of Arthur Lee's Love, Love which yeah. was a great 60s band. And uh, so he was he in that. Kicked him out because he kept trying to kill people, or what? No, no, he was <laughs> just a young kid. He wasn't into that at the time, but... For whatever reasons, he was just a young, uh, there's different stories I've heard, but he, you know, back in those days, people were moving around and playing with different folks, so he was finding his way. He was just a young 17, 18-year-old kid. He moved to uh, San Francisco, got involved in the psychedelic scene there, started his own band. It's a pretty young kid called the uh, Orchestra, and they had a, it was more of a uh, concept. He was looking for a large uh, to make a large band with all kinds of woodwind instruments and a lot of the instruments you'd have in a classical orchestra. And he, I have some of that uh, stuff on a CD. So he started that band, and he played some of the early gigs, um, like in Golden Gate Park with uh, his band played with the Grateful Dead. So during that whole period, so he, Beausoleil had that uh, background, and when he was there... Uh, at one point, they uh, tried to pull off. His band was like the Diggers band. Do you remember the Diggers from yeah. that uh, period? They were kind of a street activists, and they fed the poor, and they were in the street theater. And they st tr uh, attempted the stage, and it sounded like they were successful, uh, this uh, concert at Glide Memorial Church. And their whole intent was to start an orgy happening there. <laughs> they got the okay from the parish there to put it on, and it kind of turned into that. The band was, Beausoleil's band was playing up front, and at some point they put up a false wall, and all these belly dancers came crashing through. And, uh, you know, their whole intent was to get everybody to pull off their clothes and have a mass scale orgy. And as he was in there playing guitar, there's a famous story how he was licking the sweat from the nipples of one of the belly dancers. And none other than Kenneth Anger saw that. Kenneth Anger was the dude we saw at the Museum of Death today. <laughs> and uh, Kenneth Anger approached him about making a movie, which was uh, inv it was going to be called Lucifer Rising. He picked Beausoleil to play Lucifer. Right. Anton LaVey was in the uh, this film as well. And so, uh, you know, see some of those occult things that were going on during that a couple years before that Anton LaVey came up again in connection with Susan Atkins another one of the uh, murderers yeah because she was in the Church of Satan at the time well she she was a go-go dancer in San Francisco right. and LaVey put together a oh that's right she was in a play it was more of a, a musical uh, or kind of review with uh, the themes of occult and she played the role of a vampire. Right. 
And so there was that, the LeVay connection. This is all in the book, folks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can get it from Creation Books or Amazon or all your finer Internet uh, booksellers. Or AdamGoRightly.com. Or, no, what's, yeah, the, what's the name of your blog? I don't have it there yet. Well, so, you, can, uh, you can link from that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of those uh, connections going on. LeVay, as it turns out, Anton LeVay again, he was involved with Roman Pulaski and the making of Rosemary's Baby. Right, right. So there was Wasn't he actually in it? It's said that he's in it in the eyes that you see of the devil when he, the devil's going, having his way with Mia Farrow. Those are supposed to be Anton LaVey's eyes. Oh, okay. And that... Um, what was the deal with LaVey? Did he actually think he was doing Satan's work, or was it a carnival uh, act, or... Um, who, who knows? Maybe he was involved in some shit because apparently and this because is the, the goal of satanism is, as levey has uh has pushed it and his book was basically a political thing mm -hmm. Liber liberation of the self type uh, yeah stuff. not a oh wow thanks joe but i was, I was going to say uh, this is legend uh, during the filming of rosemary's baby apparently polanski and levey had a falling out and LeVay put a curse on uh, Polanski, which later resulted in the Manson family murders. Right, right. They're, they're, that rumor's been going on for a long time, and of course Polanski never says anything about it. Mm -hmm. Neither did LeVay. Yeah. And when asked directly about it, apparently, both of them. I so think Polanski said no, and LeVay said who knows, or maybe, or something like that. Same with Jane Mansfield, actually, too. LeVay is quite the self-promoter. Yeah. Carnival huckster, so he pro Chances are he made all that shit up, but it makes for a nice story. <laughs> well, what uh, continuing? What? Uh, well, you said that Atkins was involved with LeVay and his review. Mm -hmm. um, but what's the? What is that? The Black Magic connection? Does it go deeper? It must. It does. As, as part of the title, as it relates to the Manson family, what, what became Manson family? Well, a lot of the stuff I looked into came of it, out of Ed Sanders' book which some people say is kind of spurious at times, a lot of the information, but he connected the Manson family to the Process Church of the uh, Final Judgment. and uh, if Which you, was what? They were an occult organization that came out of uh, Scientology in England, and they broke from Scientology. Once again, you get into all these connections, Manson... Uh, in prison, studied Scientology, became an adept, and so this said he did. Is there any uh, actual evidence anywhere that Manson ex the, uh, was one in Scientology and two progressed anywhere? In my book, it says that. Well, <laughs> that's the evidence. I saw it in a book. It's true. But where did you hear it? There's other. There's like I've seen FBI documents that looked into the. Well, what does the government know about? There it? was some Manson Go connections, ahead. and that he. When he got out, he visited the uh, Celebrity Center in L.A. Now, uh, Manson's the only one. I mean, it's in different books and stuff, but I don't have any documentation that actually says he advanced to the highest level of Scientology, which is theta clear. But he, defi he definitely was well-versed in uh, Scientology. That's pretty obvious, and he took a lot of those things he uh, learned and used them later with the uh, family. That's where the mind control comes in. So, you know, there's a lot of shit to... I'm uh, fixing my glasses. <laughs> I'm trying to make Adam go on. 
but I could rattle off here forever. I brought some you should cool shit to play though. I'd yeah, rather... <laughs> well we we we've got the CD player here. You want me? You know what I should have played? And I thought of this before we came on was the trailer for the Manson movie right after the the uh, Roddy Mysterioso um, intro. Get on with that, and uh, it's very short though. It's like half half a minute. I can frame a lot of the cuts we play. I can give a little background on some of the stuff, like I have. Manson's original demos, which he uh, uh, recorded at Universal Studios on 9-11-1967. Yes, I heard. 1967. <laughs> I've got my sunglasses on, and you can't see my eyes going, yes, I know, here I just look an alien. I was just emphasizing 9-11. 1967. Yeah. The significance of nine. Nine being a significant number. number. Nine being number nine. Number nine. Nine being a uh, a, a mystical number, the number uh, important in um, in the Magic Flute by Mozart, which was a Masonic opera. Nine also being uh, figured prominently in Whitley Strieber's book about the where the that whole community supposedly had nine knocks on the, the sides of their houses. The murders happened in 1969. Yeah. And we have a new... The last date that you can actually turn over, and it reads the same upside down as right side up. That's Before interesting. that was 1881, I believe. That's good date knowledge. Yes. October 26, 1881, Gunfavido K. Corral. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with, we did, for this uh, the new reissue of the book, we did a uh, limited hardcover edition, which you saw today. Yeah, um, the the point of having the book come out now, um, well, you can explain that. Why was there a reissue and why now? We're coming up to the 40th anniversary. And I was going to say with the number nine, with this limited edition, you know, the murders happened in 69. There's 69 copies that were uh, made and they're selling for $69. Only 69 dollars, but they're sold out, aren't they? I went on the web creation, the the, uh, the publisher's website, it already says sold out. Pretty much, but I have a few copies. If someone contacts me, I squirreled away, I can hook up a brother. <laughs> you can probably you should probably keep like three or four of them and wait about a year or two. And you can sell them for a lot more than sixty nine dollars. I should probably <laughs> I should probably sit on them all, but what the fuck. <laughs> Yeah, because there's that special edition, which is a hardcover edition of 69, which is incredible having a, like we were talking to your, um, what is Scott? What do you he, call He's him? my agent dude. We were talking to. to from uh, the 70s. Your agent dude from the 70s, Scott. <laughs> um, he said that it was incredible to find a printer that would do an edition of 69 of anything. Hardcover, which is amazing. And it's very, I mean, the thing is well crafted, it's beautiful. Came out pretty damn good. I mean, in this day and age with the economy, I think, oh man, do people want to lay down that money? But it's sold pretty well. It's a good investment, you know. What's different between this uh, edition and the last one? Um, it's uh, well, one thing I went through the uh, original edition and edited it, and think it's a smoother read. It's well, better crafted. There's some uh, new info in there on uh, talk about. Uh, this later on, Steve Grogan, who's a former Manson family murderer, the only one who's been uh, released on parole and is actually still involved in the music scene. 
but we'll get into that a bit later. And there's a hell of a lot more uh, photos, and uh, everybody should have one. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to play this Manson movie ad, and then you're, yeah, maybe, oh, wow, it's a minute long. You should tell me what you want to play off this other disc. What should I cue it up to so we can go right into it? Okay. Um, where the hell is the disc? Uh, I want you to pl start with track three. Play track three, four, and five. Okay, we'll go straight to three, four, and five after the uh, after we play this uh, this uh, ad for a, a movie called Manson, which came out when. Why don't you give some background for this movie, this Manson, documentary? Manson came out in 1970. Very quickly after the murder. While the trial was still going on, it sounds like. Almost. Yeah, it must have. It's a great movie. Uh, a lot of it, uh, they interview... I think uh, they still have a tape of it, actually. Mm -hmm, it's excellent. Bugliosi, of course, is in it. And uh, little Paul Watkins, who is kind of uh, Manson's right-hand man, is interviewed. In fact, I have... Uh, a track from some of the music from uh, that documentary that Paul Watkins and a guy named Brooks Poston recorded for the uh, ah. movie, and uh, they actually went out to uh, Brooks Poston uh, found disappeared. No, you're thinking of somebody else. Oh, okay. And uh, the filmmakers they got tight with the family. This is in Charlie's locked up, and they went out to Spawn Ranch and filmed a lot of stuff and. You know, they used a lot of archival footage, but it's probably still the best documentary, I think, on the Manson family. Okay, here's a, the ad from Manson, the movie from 1970. Are you Manson? The name is synonymous with murder. Now a bizarre motion picture that reveals the terrifying truth behind the Tate LaBianca massacre. You'll meet Charles Manson face to face, and for the first time outside the courtroom, you'll learn the staggering details of the most hideous murders in the annals of crime. You'll meet one man's family, the Manson family, and see and hear their horrifying philosophy of sex, perversion, violence, and murder, told in their own words by the killers themselves. You'll learn how they kill, why they kill, and who they are planning to kill when they get the chance. All of what you will see in the motion picture Manson has been suppressed until now, not permitted on radio, TV, or in family newspapers. That's why it's rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. Manson, you'll never forget the name, and you'll never forget the picture. Clang, bang, clang, went the big iron door. They put me in a cell with a concrete floor. Nine other men in that cell with me, moaning their fate with destiny. Clang, bang, clang, clang, bang, clang. Early in the morning at the crack of dawn, they wake us to the tune of a bong, bong, Said to me now, boy, you had it. I forgot that one too. 
Anyway, that's another song. You know what, man? I wrote a lot of these songs, and I'm just singing them, you know, and I don't even forgot the ones I wrote. Forget we're even here, man. I ain't even here, baby. You're all by yourself out there. What I am? are you nervous about? <laughs> just blow your soul, Hey, man. well, look here. Let me explain something to you. I wrote about a couple hundred songs, you know. Are you listening? And then I forgot, and I started making them up as I go, you know. And then I uh, forgot the other songs that I, that I, you know, I've got them all written down and all that, man. But, uh, yeah, all right, I'll give you an example, man. I'll try to stick to a, a song that will uh, make you some money. Uh, <laughs> let's see. This is for the youngsters. Your home is where you're happy It's not where you're not free Your home is where you can be what you are Cause you were just born to be You can have a castle And diamonds for all to see But you'll never have that peace of mind Until you've learned to be free Cause you're strong in your mind And anywhere you could wonder You could make that your home And as long as you love in your heart You'll never be alone As long as you've got love in your heart You'll never be alone Boy, I just can't get nothing right today, man <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like, yes. Yeah, well, there, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't. That's why Yeah, well, I'm having a hard time, uh, uh, going with a spontaneous song, man, because I'm, you know, I'm on the point. I had a little monkey and I sent him to the country and fed him on gingerbread. Along come a choo-choo and knocked him cuckoo and now my monkey's dead. <laughs> da, 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 da. He was a monkey, did <laughs> the monkey, just like a monkey. All you monkeys and how to do, teeny monkey. He lived in a tree, fell in love with a chimpanzee. And every time he'd hold Susie tight, he'd say, Come on, girl, there's a monkey tonight. Let's do the monkey. Just like the monkeys that we are Oh, monkey, you funky monkey <laughs> Now, which doctor come to the city one day Saw Susie and Sam, they were monkeying away. He said, You gotta come to the jungle with me. Teach the monkeys how to do the monkey. They did the monkey. <laughs> like the monkeys that they were. <laughs> Happy song. <laughs> In ancient China, young boy very bold 
says to his father, you know what, Dan, I like rock and roll. Ancient father say, what's the matter, you kid? You want to get us in trouble with the police again? Say, why you talk like that, father? You're not Italian. So ancient China, boy, he got a guitar and go to the United States to play some soul. Skipped the border and went to the state Tuned his guitar like a sitar And tried to make some record days But he couldn't get it tuned It wasn't tuned right He tuned all day And he tuned all night He went rock and roll Rock and roll He couldn't play it He couldn't say it Rock and roll Now the war department dug this kid sound He said, Jack, you got the coolest sound around town So they his records to the city of Seoul and drove the communists mad with Chinese lock and <laughs> My God, that's Charlie. That was from uh, Charlie's demo sessions, which he recorded on 9 11. 67. A little background, uh, when Manson was in prison at Terminal Island before his release in 67, he met a guy named Phil Kaufman, who has an interesting story as well. He ended up burning uh, Graham Parsons' corpse at uh, Joshua Tree. And anyway, this Kaufman guy, he heard Charlie playing uh, guitar there at Terminal Island, and he told him, hey, when you get out, dude, I'll hook you up with some of my Hollywood connections. So that's how these uh, ses sessions came about at Universal, and you just heard uh, the first song was Clang, Bang, Clang. About being in prison? Yep, followed by Your Home and Monkey, Lock, and Lowell. And uh, that second tune, Your Home, actually the longer title I've heard is Your Home is Where You're Your, Excuse me, Your Home is Where You Are Happy. And uh, some of the lyrics are pretty telling in that uh, there's a bridge where he goes, So burn all your bridges, leave the old world behind. You can be what you want to be because you're strong in your mind. That was kind of his whole philosophy of indoctrination with his girls that he brought in. They had to sever themselves. Actually. Yeah, sever themselves from their uh, families and be... Uh, Come one with their new family and their new father, Charlie Manson, superstar. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? There's, there's a, a. Um, that sounds almost like something that uh, Bugliosi would say. Yeah, it makes sense to me, though. <laughs> yeah. How do you differ from you know the orthodox, straight world Manson view of what was going on with? Uh, in that period with Manson, the family, and how he picked up all those people and made them do what they did, and et cetera. And we'll get into the mind control and all that later. Seems like you asked me a couple different questions there. How do I... How do you differ from the, you know, there's the standard thing, which is kind of vague if you read Helter Skelter, which is um, he provided them a home, he didn't put any pressure on them. He told them everything his, their parents told them not to do. They said he said was okay. I and, think I think I agree, agree with that stuff. I uh, depart from Bugliosi with the whole helter skelter uh, 
theory that uh, you know Charlie felt that there was this race war going down, and uh, you know that precipitated the whole Hilt, you know the whole Manson family uh, murders. I think Bugliosi used the helter skelter theory basically to convict Manson, but we don't know for sure. That's I'd probably differ from other books because I don't know anything for sure, you know. But lyric, you know. Obviously, he knew what he was doing when he was uh, taking those kids out to the desert and laying this whole philosophy on them about severing themselves from their past and, you know, uh, making the creating this whole family around himself. Yeah. Are you sick of talking about this stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to talk about it a little longer. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's a fascinating subject. I've been doing this since it's almost 10 years now, so uh, it's like... Eh. But the first edition of the book was in 2000... Well, yeah, but I one s- or two or started writing it back in 98 or so. Right, right. So, what, so the new edition is because the 40th anniversary is coming mm-hmm. up. Unless I wasn't listening, I was trying to figure out... Uh, my question was... How is this version, this revised edition, different from the uh, earlier big fat revised uh, original edition of um, Shadow over Santa Susana? It's more better, like more better. <laughs> it's better. I, I, better more? I actually told you there's a lot more photos. There was no photos. Oh, that's in right. The, you said uh, that. First. There were no photos. I thought there was that whole "Where Are They Now" section in the back that had photos oh, of. Well, I it was t- kind of like more like mug shots. So. I take I take that back. Yeah. There were those I wanted photos. to contradict Scott today, but we were right in front of a, somebody who was, he was trying to promote mm-hmm. the book to, so I didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, once again, it was there was things about the first edition that I didn't like. It was a self-published book and done pretty damn well over the year. I think I've sold uh, 1,500 copies, which is good for a self, yeah. self-published thing. But there was you a lot. sell more now because you've got kind of a publicity machine going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so one of the motivations was just to go back, and uh, there was problems with the first edition as far as it was sloppy in places. I edited it myself. You get better as a writer. So there was things I didn't like, was embarrassed about, so it gave me a chance to clean it up, add some new things, and just make it a smoother read. And another thing with that uh, first edition, it was 600 pages, which is great. A lot of shit there for a Madsen Freak, but trying as far as uh, the price of the book was pretty hefty, thirty bucks, you know. So if you can, a lot of book and a lot of printing. So a little smaller, tighter book, cheaper. People can go out and uh, this new edition is actually cheaper. At least the paperback is is uh, costs less than the original. Amazon, go to Amazon and buy it for thirteen ninety five. Yeah, and the original was what, almost thirty bucks. Oh shit! Yeah, right. Yeah, which was self-published through ID Universe, which is a print-on-demand, but this is an actual real publisher, which is mm-hmm. becoming rarer and rarer for good books like this. It's tough, yeah, these days. I can't think of another question. We're going to answer some of Walter's. Let's uh, play another uh, oh, okay. tr- track. We we listened to uh, Charlie's demo sessions, and I'm going to play a little spoken word thing from a, a disc called Manson Speaks, and it gives a little more background during that period when he was involved. Which track is it on here so I can cue it up? And it gives some backgrounds. Charlie uh, went to Universal, did those uh, sessions, and got kind of tight in the uh, voice you heard, that producer you heard. 
on the last track was this guy named Greg Stromberg. He was kind of hot for uh, Manson, and he got Manson involved in a film project. So if you go to cut seven, uh, Manson will talk about uh, his involvement with Universal Studios during this period, how he got involved in uh, making a movie. When is this? Uh, when was this quote recorded? This is from the Manson Speaks disc, so it's probably, uh, it's not that old. It's like from the late 80s, perhaps, maybe oh, okay. 20 years old. Okay, let's see if this is working. And I believe it is cut seven. I got a, a thing down south I've been working on uh, that might come true. A couple of dreams, a couple of dreams. You know, it's hard to make a reality. You know, everybody's stuck in the realities that are already made and locked in the movies that have already per perpetrated those realities, you know. It's like when I got out, I went to Universal Studios and, uh, and this uh, uh, Hebrew producer told me he wanted me to help him write the music for a, a movie about the second coming of Christ. Uh, he told me that he wanted me to play music with uh, a guy from South Africa and another guy from uh, Africa. And I told him, yeah, my uncle would shoot me for doing that. I said, no, 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 I don't play music like that, you know. So then he blackballed me from the music system and then burned all my music up because I wouldn't go along with his trip, see. So what he was doing is he was using the black people on one side of town to, to play his music and make money. And then he had a Hebrew woman with kids on the other side of town that he was giving the money to. In other words, and I said, oh, you've got a little double thing going here, you know. You want to call people racist if they don't use people. I said, I don't use black people. I said, because if I use people, then I'm used by people. So I don't want to be used by anyone, so therefore I'm not going to use anyone, you know. So uh, we had a big thing there, you know, and like, uh, I was going to shoot him, but then I thought, well, if I shoot him, I'll go back to the penitentiary, and I didn't want to shoot him, you know, because I didn't want to go back to jail. Uh, so I went through some changes, and uh, I lost the music there, and then the Beach Boys gave it back to me, you know. Okay, what he was talking about, I believe, was a, uh, he was working on a film uh, project, and this came from Ed Sanders about the second coming of Christ, and this was going to be in the deep south instead of, you know, a white Jew back in Roman times, it was a black dude, and I think the l movie later evolved into a uh, film called Brother John with Sidney Poitier, I don't know if he, any of you guys ever saw that. Mm -hmm. But when Charlie heard it was a black dude, he wasn't down with it like you could hear there because he had the Hebrew on one side of the town, whatever he was talking about there. And so, anyway, that was his uh, connection to Universal Studios. And Charlie had all kinds of stories that he was fucking banging different uh, stars and stuff at Universal. And he had uh, was hanging out in Cary Grant's bungalow while Cary Grant was gone. Doing acid? Uh, oh, while well, he was gone, okay. Actually, he's having some homo liaison with somebody who I think might have been, uh, I better not say. Why not? I think, well, he calls him Mr. B. Jim Neighbors? <laughs> I suspect it might have been Yul Brenner, who later comes up in the uh, Manson story, but don't quote me on that. Well, well I guess I already quoted myself. Huh? Yeah, you're screwed. Never mind.
Unless I edit that out, which means the people that are listening right now are hearing the unexpurgated version. Yeah. Which I will remind you, sometimes I do not repost shows because I don't want stuff repeated. It, so it, um, listen to the show from 8 to 10 p.m. on Sundays. It's just a theory, I suspect. Perhaps right. it might have been Yul Brynner, but he said it was some star on the uh, Universal lot. Oh, okay. And another interesting tidbit, there's a guy who wrote a biography of Cary Grant that says that Cary Grant was at the La Bianca, or not the La Bianca house, the Tate house, on the night of the murders having some type of uh, homosexual liaison. He was outside in the garden when he heard the shit going down inside and he split the scene. Mm-hmm. That's in a book by a guy named William Belasco. It's a biography. Obviously, it's probably unauthorized, but right, right. another of those many... Um, way out uh, things you hear, and I kind of put all those together in the book, and I don't claim they're, you know, the veracity of a lot of that stuff. It's up to the reader to make up their own mind. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, it's such a great companion of everything to do with Manson, and uh, you kind of got to decide for yourself whether this, some of this stuff is important or not. Um, what do you think is important in the story? What do you think happened with the... It's, it's a big question, you know, what... Why did why did uh, Manson do this, and how did he get, you know, how did he get people to follow him to, to the point where somebody says kill? Well, I get, you know what? They'll make the comparisons when they were on trials, like, well, a country gets you to kill when you're a soldier, and blah 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 blah. But I think the most important uh, thing about the story is the impact it had on society. You know, Woodstock and the Manson family murders happened within a couple weeks of each other, you know. that the Woodstock <laughs> was the high watermark, supposedly the peace-loving Damn drugs generation. You had the Manson family murders go on t during that uh, same period, which kind of signaled the whole end of that era, you know. so Three years. Four. Mm -hmm. Four years. Yeah. Because supposedly kicked off in 65, right, in San Francisco? Mm-hmm. That's when Officially. Kesey and his posse were running around. and Wasn't yeah. that the first summer of love thing? It was in 65, right, in Golden Gate Park? I'm not sure about that. I think it was 65. Yeah. Yeah. So it was this little short four-year period. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it all comes uh, tumbling down then, and then people want to get away from that, and they you know, find themselves by being hedonist hedonistic instead of, uh, um, what's the word, compassionate, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Joe, Joe says flowers and books. Uh, also in the studio here are, are um, I don't know your last names, I just know Joe and Pete, which are, uh, who are, um, uh, have come down to Los Angeles to check out these venues where uh, there's going to be some book signings and music uh, on August, what is it, 6th and 7th? Oh, 9th? Mm, you are correct, sir. Yeah, August. At, uh, let's give a brief rundown at that. Yeah, please do. At Soap Plant Wacko, which is also La Luz de Jesus Gallery. The Lusty Jesus Gallery, yes. Yeah, that one. We're going to have a big gig on August 9th, I guess, from still working out the uh, details from 6 to 9. What's the gig involved? The gig involves uh, me doing a lecture and a PowerPoint, Michael Marinacci, author of Weird America. We'll be there. Re Mysterious California. Mysterious California. This is original, then Weird, Weird California. California. Yeah. He'll be reading the intro uh, to my book. We're going to have a uh, 
costume contest, Manson look-alike uh, thing. I think they were going to try to sell alcohol there, and my friends here are going to play some songs. I helped write one of the tunes. You guys want to hear one of those songs now? If I can find it. We will play, and this song pretty much exemplifies what I was saying about uh, how it brought about the end of the year. It's called Flowers and Blood. What's the band called for this project? The Flying Sorcerers. It's the Flying Sorcerers with um, Flowers and Blood. It's funny because we were just talking about... Um, we'll play Flowers and Blood now and uh, make sure we get the other one in. What's the track? Uh, what's it say on the uh, CD? I think it's number two. And so, yeah, all you L.A. freaks come out to soap plant uh, Wacko on August 8th, and I'll be at the... Yeah, I, I get it confused because the murders actually started on August 8th. August 9th, number nine. Think number nine. The significance, yeah. And then the next night... I'll shut up and play the... Uh, well, we'll talk about... There's, yeah. there's two There's two uh, appearances out uh, within two days. They're at the uh, first week of August, or well, running into the first week of just past the first week of August. Meanwhile, here's Flowers and Blood by um, Flying Sorcerers. Sorcerers. Sorcerers? Flying Sorcerers. Out of the summer of love came the children of flowers and blood with coffins in their eyes searching for truth in a graveyard full of lies.
Flowers and Blood by Flying Sorcerers, which I pronounced properly. Joe or Pete, who wrote that song? Yeah, actually, Paul was the one who wrote the song, and then Pete and I and the rest of the band actually, you know, had a lot of contribution in it afterwards. Yeah, Paul wrote the song and kind of makes it even more appropriate to attach to the book release, I think. Yeah, Paul, or Adam. Adam. Paul, Paul is my code name. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Adam, Adam wrote the, Adam Gorightly wrote that song. Well... Partially. It was a group effort, Al, it was. obviously. It was. Uh, I'm being modest. I, you know, we actually all had a lot to do with it. So, um, But Paul actually came up with the... The original germ of the idea. Yes, the original germ. <laughs> there you go, boys and girls. Come out to Soap Plant Wacko. August the 9th. August, August 9th. I was going to say August 8th again. All this yeah. shut up. August 9th at uh, 6 o'clock, right? We're imbibing yeah. adult beverages here, yes. so it's going to... Plenty to drink, plenty to listen to. <laughs> what did you say? It's the first time I've drank alcohol on my show in years. No, Greg is getting drunk with um, the rest of us here. And I think it's a bad influence from the... We're, we're from Fresno, and we we drink... He's had about, one beer, yeah. so... Yeah. It's all going to have an empty stomach. Yeah. <laughs> but he did actually... Um, well, I won't talk about the ecstasy, but... Um, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's feeling good. Next up... Today we ran out and checked out the uh, La Bianca house, which is on so Waverly, Waverly, Drive. Waverly Drive. And Lo- in Silver Lake, or Los Feliz, actually. And next, or Los Feliz. <laughs> <laughs> and next door to uh, the La Bianca house is what's known as the uh, Harold True house. And the Manson family used to go to party there back in the days, obviously before the murders so the connections between those two houses are there's a lot of conjecture but this guy Harold True who lived next door to the uh, La Biancas I have a recording of an interview he did that's on that uh, CD I put in there it's like 20 years old and it's pretty hilarious but sheds a lot of light on True's involvement and uh, apparently he picked up Charlie when Charlie got released from Terminal Island back in uh, 67. I think he was going to pick up uh, Phil Kaufman, the guy who uh, helped uh, Manson get the Universal recording session. So this uh, interview always cracks me up because, uh, well, let's check it out when it comes up on your uh, board there. Which is uh, which track? Uh, can you read the names of stuff? It's like a uh, no. da- data CD. Oh, well, no, I can't read them. Okay. Not uh, unless I put them in the other computer. This, this is just a CD player. Hmm. Well, let's let's listen to see what's on that damn thing, then. You're so lazy. Oh, uh, Mr. Walter Bosley uh, sent in some questions. One of them was about... Uh, what were Charlie's specific experiences in that Kentucky town with the bad history? Right, uh... There was a period of time when uh, Charlie was unaccounted for by his parole officer, and I think it was like in 68. And as uh, the theory goes, there's a long-haired hippie type that showed up, I think it was in Asheville, Kentucky, during that period, dispensing acid and ran around with a motorcycle. Somebody claimed they saw Susan Atkins and Charlie together, calling himself the preacher. And during that period is when... uh, 
a guy named Darwin Scott was murdered pretty brutally, and Darwin Scott was the brother of Colonel Scott, who was uh, Charles Manson's father. Okay, here it is. It's it's it looks like it might be track three, Harold Drew. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Oh, I'm still at Mr. Bosley, your other questions. I don't have a lot of answers for all of them, but uh, let's get together and we can hash this stuff out uh, sometime. He will answer your questions off the air. Meanwhile, here's the recording of uh, Harold True. The uh, Oh, there's our friend, the uh, requisite. Now, the, 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 our requisite uh, siren going by. And here's the um, recording of the guy who picked up uh, Charlie hitchhiking in... We'll let it be self-explanatory until uh, Adam comes back. Hello. Uh, hello, Harold. Yes. Hi, my name's Judy Hansen, and I talked to um, Ernie Balsell. Yeah. And he said it was okay if I gave you a call. Yeah. How you doing? Why? Yeah. Well, I just that you sound like you're tired, and if you didn't want to talk right now, I could understand that. What do you want? Well, what's going? Is there any money in it for me? I don't think so. Well, then forget it. Well, if that's your attitude, that's your attitude, I guess. All them people belong in a nut house. Not one of them deserve to be in jail. Well, I don't have a problem with that. Um, problem is, is that Rosemary LaBianca's daughter wants them out. Well, talk to her. What are you talking to me about it? Well, the thing that's going on is that we were wondering if, I mean, we, we know that you live next door. And we knew that you knew some of the Manson members, family members. I knew them all. Okay. So the issue is, is that what's the possibility of her, of Rosemary LaBianca's daughter, knowing them too? Zero. Why? Because nobody lived next door when we lived there. It was an empty house. Yeah, but she lived in the area all of her life. <laughs> she grew up there. Them fucking fruit takes could not find their, they could not pour piss out of the boot with the bottom written on it. All Charlie Manson ever told them people at any time is do what you think is right. Now, when you tell a person who's mentally deranged to do what is right, you don't, you know, you have killing of Jews, you have killing of Palestinians, you have the elimination of Indians. You know, that's what you do when you do them. You, you tell people, you, you apply human thoughts and logic and reason to people that are crazy because it doesn't come out the way you figured it. Right. She did not know Tex Watson. Tex Watson came from Texas. He landed on that ranch. Them girls snatched him and he lived up on that ranch and he didn't even know where the fuck I lived. The only people that knew where I lived was Charlie Manson, a couple of the girls, and uh, Linda Kasabian because she was from some other trip. And she no more knows the LaBiancas than fucking Adolf Hitler and uh, Shamir Perez are brothers. Well, the only reason, you know, I just wanted to ask, because Susan lived on Greenwood Place and Watson lived on Dracena, and they lived 60 feet from each other. Where, in Texas? No, off of, Los, off of Vermont and Los Feliz. Uh, That's verified. That when he first got here? In 1967. Also, he lived on Glendale Boulevard, and, so, well, the LaBiancas owned property two doors down from where he lived. She don't know the fuck. If she knew the guy, she would have been on that big black bus with the rest of them yahoos. 
Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know that she was involved with any of the killings or anything like that. I don't. I know everybody that was in the family. I knew them all personally. I knew all of them. I knew Charlie from day one. I saw him collect every one of his girls and little troops. And I'm going to school telling psychiatrists about this guy, and they're telling me I'm full of shit because nobody like Charlie Manson exists. Really? And I'm telling you, you guys are fucked up. You're lucky he's not selling Fords. She does not know Tex Watson. Okay. Okay. Well, you know... Because, you know, Charlie Manson, where did he go to do the killings? He went to the two places he knew in L.A. and two places only. He went to my house and he went to David Melcher's house. Because we told him he couldn't live in our house. And Terry Melcher told him he couldn't make shit with a voice for record album. Yeah, so you believe that what he was trying to do was just, it was like revenge, he was pissed off? And nah, he they do the fuck, no, they're crazy. You can't ascribe reason to crazy people. Yeah, that's true, that's true. When you're in a big city, if you're in New York, and you know where the Rockefeller Plaza is and the Statue of Liberty, where are you going to go in New York? Yeah. You're going to go to them, them two places. Those people did not go running around. If she lived in Venice, maybe, because they used to go down there and get all their dope in Venice. Yeah. But he was, Tex Watson, he was the biggest wimp of all. He's a mama's boy. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> That's why he's in there with all them broads. You gotta look at the reason why all them people were together. Yeah. Well, you know, again, that just that in looking at this situation again, it's just that some things that didn't... you know, you read, see, you're reading shit into it. Just like everybody's read everything into Charlie Manson's case that can be read into it, especially that that scum of the earth, Bugalusi, man. The well, way he wheeled and dealed and connived and did everything to get so he could to push his career and he didn't give a fuck at whose who's expense. Yeah. He put he fucking booked me and threw my ass in jail for murder, man. And how's this for an airtight uh, alibi? I was in Ethiopia and he told me that didn't mean a fuck because I knew about it and conspired with him. How did you get out? I got a good fucking lawyer. That's how I got out. Told him to shove it up their ass. Well, that, that would work. Do you know a guy by the name of Joe Krager? Joe Krager? Yeah. Yeah? Um, did, is, did he know Charlie? Do you smoke? Yeah. Well, then you go to New Mexico and you go on one of them Indian reservations and start sending smoke signals because that's where Joe Krieger's at. But did he know, do you know if he knew Charlie? He met Charlie Manson once. He was with the New Mexico Charlie. So you got two different Charlies here. Well, how, how, did, how did you guys meet Charlie? I met him when he got out of Terminal Island Prison. Did, did he just come to your house at a party? or? No, nah, we went and picked him up. I had another friend just getting out of the fucking joint. Oh, so he was at T.I. whenever you met him then? 
I, no, I didn't meet him at T.I. Well, when he I got out of T.I. Pacific Coast Highway with his bags the day they kicked him out of fucking Terminal Island. Well, that's what I meant. When he got out of T.I., that's when you met him. All right. Um, if I were to produce a picture of Susan, could you take a look at it for me and see if you recognize No. Okay. This lady, this is 20 years ago. How old is this girl going to be? How old is this girl supposed to be? Right now? Well, she yeah. was 21 when the murders went down. She was 21, and she didn't know Charlie. She didn't know Tex Watson. She didn't know none of them, and she was 21 when it went down. Why? The rest of them were 21. I mean, I just talked to Krenwinkel. Krenwinkel said the name sounded familiar to her. That they have... Oh, Krenwinkel, man. She carries her brains in a lunchbox. You think so, huh? Yes. Well, Look, I'm no idiot. No, I've got, I know. I've got, a, I've got a college degree, and I, and I know a few little fucking things about life and law and myself, and I know people when they're nuts. Hey, I agree. I don't have any problem with any of this bullshit. The only thing that I'm trying to tell you is that, you know, I think that there's some things here that don't fly. That one don't. Okay, fine. That's a lead fucking balloon. If she was 21 years old and she knew Tex Watson... She would have been at our house. Well, that's what I'm saying. How do you know she wasn't? Oh. Have you ever had a party of 300 people and remember everybody who Well, that's what I'm saying. If you saw a picture, she had a party of 600 people on walking way eight or nine months before the murders went down. Charlie didn't know about them. He was out in Spawn Ranch. Well, he didn't stay at Spawn Ranch. I mean, I got a dead body with a Marina Hobby in 1969 that looks like Chuck did that one, too. Charlie? Yeah. Oh, man. Charlie's not a killer. Charlie's nuts. Charlie's institutionalized. Well, and that may be. He's five foot two. So he's got a short man's complex. I don't know. I don't think that just because no, you're short not. that you he's can't fucking kill somebody. Been, he's got a brain that was formed in the United States Penal Institution of America. Which would make him a killer. I Listen, we. I don't have... That doesn't make anybody a killer. But it doesn't make him not one. I mean, well, here we're arguing how many the, uh, yeah, I don't, angels on the head of a pen. I'll tell you, she never met the guy. Would you be willing to just take a look at her picture to see if... No. Okay. I mean, listen, I've been bothered all my life by this bullshit. And I've had it up to my neck. Everybody made money on this. Man, I'm in a book. I just get married. Next thing, my picture's on TV. I'm Manson's outside Lucy. Well, that's... I can see where you get a little uptight. He hung up on me. What was that? Wasn't that some good stuff? Yeah. There was a researcher by the name of Bill Nelson who put together some pretty schlocky uh, books as far as... Uh, they were in uh, deep need of a good editor, and but... Uh, he, he turned up some pretty interesting information. One of them was this deal that uh, Rosemary LaBianca's daughter was somehow involved with the Manson family, and she became a, a Christian crusader later on trying to get Tex Watson out of prison and all this stuff. So this gal he's talking to here, I think her name was Judy Hansen, kind of a Manson researcher wannabe track track down Harold True. This is probably 20 years ago. 
and was following this line of investigation. What I, was the line of investigation? It sounded like she was trying to make something out of nothing about people living next door to each other and trying to. Uh, you know, have you ever lived in a city? Well, you don't know your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Sixty no. feet away from each other. <laughs> I live sixty feet away from. I'm starting to sound like I live sixty feet away from like thirty people. I don't know their yeah. names. It's interesting. That's the only uh, interview I know with Harold True. And uh, he threw some big parties, and we went by their pad today. That's that second place I took. Yeah, it's, uh, this, it's this house next door to the La Bianca house where the murders took place. And actually, there's even tapes of Charlie recording music at uh, Harold True's uh, place. So it's interesting, a little historical tidbit. It's the only interview I know with him. Why did they go next door instead of to Harold? They went to his house first, but uh, there was nobody there, or...? Harold True had moved out, and the La Biancas were in, but there's Bill Nelson looked into a lot of stuff claiming that there was a connection between True and the La Biancas and that they had uh, some type of altercations, and there's these rumors that uh, La Bianca was tied in with the mafia, had gambling debts, Oh yeah, yeah. And that uh, he had gambling debts to uh, some big mafiosos that Charlie knew in prison. They were sort of his mentors, a guy named Frankie Carbo, and uh, I forget some of the other names. So that's that's the whole area of investigation that was going on with this Judy Hansen calling people and uh, oh oh they were trying to figure out if there's a mob connection. Yeah, and also what was the role of Susan Atkins' daughter? That's a Susan they were talking about. In the oh, tape. okay. Did you know her? Was she at your party? And he's going, ah, oh, lady, fuck. You know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we went over the black magic part, meaning the connection to the process church. What's wrong with this? Okay, there we go. Uh, yeah, we've got 50 minutes left that we want to fill up, uh, which was part of the process, which was his connection with the process church. And, oh, you know what? I had a question um, and I asked you earlier when we were, you know, before the show, uh, Manson used to say that he had a, a achieved operating Thetan level or something in the in the Church of Scientology. How the hell did he get involved with Scientology, and how did the, how was this ever proved when people bring it up all the Oh, he was involved in Scientology. Well, was he? I could be involved in Scientology. I read I, I read part of Dianetics before I realized it was derivative of everything else I'd read, but. In what kind of evidence is there for that? It's written in different books. and uh, Where did the information come from, though? From Manson himself? or Are the Scientologists well, running through prisons in the 1960s trying to recruit people? What the deal was, there was a student. There's of, no uh, money in it. You wouldn't think they would. A guy named Lanier Rainier, he was a student of L. Ron Hubbard's, ended up in prison. Uh-huh. And according to the legend coming from Ed Sanders' books and... It's been written about in other books, too, but maybe it's all regurgitation. Right, but right. Manson uh, studied under this Lanier Rainier, put together a group in prison to do Scientology study. And during the course of all that, uh, Manson graduated to the high, highest level of uh, clear. Well, he might have been uh, Rainier's bitch or something. That's why. <laughs> that's could possibly be yes. And how does how does this guy know how to you know if he's an operating fate and mm-hmm. lever a little clear what the hell's he doing in prison? He should be beyond <laughs> that. Well, I think it's all a bunch of bullshit anyway. But right. you know, 
but he did, you know, there is some foundation you're saying to the fact that he knew about Scientology, some of the uh, methods and theories about it, and probably used it when he was, uh, in addition to all his prison upbringing. FBI documents that after he got out of prison, he went to some uh, happenings. They had events at the Celebrity Center, Scientology Celebrity Center, and also at Spawn Ranch they find, found a bunch of uh, Scientology documents of some sort. So he was definitely into it to some extent. Right. Um, I got one pulling this stuff out of my brain. Jim Keith, the late great dead uh, conspiracy researcher, was a... Uh, pretty high level in Scientology, so he told me, and he said he heard, uh, he got information from within the Church of Scientology that uh, Charlie Manson was what was known as a body router or a recruiter for Scientology. So there you go, it's just a bunch of little threads you can tie together. Well, yeah, there's there's hundreds of them you can yeah. tie together, and I think he was, is one of those things, kind of like Hubbard, just pull a bunch of stuff that's useful for probably mainly controlling people or their perceptions or however they're going to react to you or perceive you and using those mm -hmm. as as a basis of whatever his personal philosophy was which was you know wh how did this how did this change from just having a bunch of girls around and having fun and taking drugs and having sex as much as you wanted to deciding I, it was it was uh, important to go and murder people and uh, why did they do that i really think it was about drugs Drug deals, drug burns, that whole group, uh, Wojtek Frakowski, was involved in dealing with MDA. And uh, through the uh, trial transcripts, you heard a lot of stuff that Linda Kasabian got burned up, burned by Frakowski and his bunch, that Jay Sebring was involved in drug dealing, that uh, the guys who were dealing drugs to Frakowski were taken uh, to the Tate LaBianca house and uh, basically uh, filmed while they're being whipped and sodomized and that there's rumors that the uh, <laughs> some of the Manson family, the girls, might have been subjected to this type of stuff. So there's a whole lot of shit out there and there's interviews from the likes of uh, Terry Melcher, uh, Dennis Hopper, who are saying that that whole crowd, they were into some bad uh, shit. The drugs, the uh, S&M, the filming of all this stuff. And somehow, you know, the, the whole thing started really with a uh, drug uh, burn that happened with Bobby Beausoleil when he murdered uh, Gary Hinman. That came from a biker group that... Uh, Beausoleil was the middleman from Gary Hinman. He sold some drugs, some MDA, I think it was MDA, to this biker group, and it was bad shit, and they came back to Beausoleil and said, we want our money back because we're getting sick. Beausoleil went back and held uh, Hinman at uh, knife point, gun point, and he wouldn't cough For up like the money. For like two or three days or something? And eventually uh, just resulted in uh, murder. So this whole stigma or aura of... A drug burn that went south, you know, a drug deal that went south is, I think, is what is behind it all. Some seamy shit going on behind the scenes. And maybe Manson and his bunch, once again, you talk about 
there's some mafia connections there that that's what brought it all about, right? So it is nothing really to do with race wars or anything like that, but that's what that's what uh, they Bugliosi anyway thought that he could get him on. Mm-hmm. And, and tr- not on drug burns. Why do you stay away from the drug stuff? It would seem that some some writers, some people would think, why do you stay away from the drug stuff for, for a good reason, or he just couldn't get very good evidence of it. Probably went too fucking deep into Hollywood and all the people involved and all the. Yeah, okay. I think. And uh, Charlie out there in the desert, they'd take acid and he'd start talking about uh, all this stuff, quoting from Revelation and tying this. You know, he talked about all kinds of stuff, filling his heads, you know, the heads of his people with Helter Skelter and there's shit going on in the city and we're going to take refuge out here in this whole race war. You know, he probably uh, told them a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, that's just what some of his followers uh, perceived. You know, that was just one perception from a bunch of acid heads or one of the many things that Charlie told people that they picked up from him. Right. It might have been one or two people, but Bogolosi, that scumbag Bogolosi... (laughs) <laughs> picked up on it, and uh, he had to run with something to convict him. Yeah, what what's the motivation behind behind uh, him prosecuting that trial the way he did, from your point of view, and uh, a possible you know possible connection, and to my mind, of him writing a book about the uh, JFK murder and and reiterating the single bullet theory. Didn't he? That yeah. was what that was the point of his book, right? That came out I don't know six or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Repeat you the know, question. There, there seems to be a through line here of 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 towing an official line for some reason. Mm-hmm. And he had to come up with an official line for the Manson thing. And when you say, well, you know, he didn't want to touch people in Hollywood and powerful yeah. people that he w- he was that was May Brussels theory, the great conspiracy researcher that. He was basically some type of control or disinformation agent, and he did the same thing with his involvement in the JFK assassination. He's written a book here recently. He's also involved with the RFK assassination. Is he writing a book about that and about how it was Sirhan Sirhan only? And No, I get into it a bit in the book, and it's pretty involved, but he was uh, basically... Uh, he believed there was a conspiracy behind the RFK assassination. And not behind JFK, huh? Right. <laughs> Which tells me and uh, you know what May Brussel felt, that he was some type of uh, disinformation or a vacuum gathering up this information and maybe putting out, you know, some red herrings out there to cover the tracks of JFK, Tate LaBianca, all these things that kind of lead back to mafia or higher levels in the government. Do you agree with that in any way? I suspect that, yeah. Yeah, well, I I, I know you. You're I kind of have the same opinion of you where I will look at things and weigh the evidence and think that, you know, I, I will examine it to the point where I go almost to the belief level mm-hmm. just because you get more out of it by by just opening the filters up. 
while not you know while not going to taking the final step off the cliff or whatever and just dropping right into your a whole belief system of oh yeah well it's because it never ends once you accept there's some sort of conspiracy you can just keep going and you, you it never ends it's that onion thing and you look at the different players who've been involved well if you want to do that you and I are and and Joe and Peter involved too mm-hmm. <laughs> well read the book I all right bring up like Lawrence Sheeler was involved with the, writing a book that basically... Which uh, book? Quite a few, but he did... Well, I mean, besides the Lenny Bruce book, which I know A about. book on Susan Atkins that uh, was... Uh, Is that that Child of Satan, Child of God? No, it was or? before that. It happened during the uh, Tate LaBianca trials where basically she, she turned state's evidence on Charlie. Later, she said it was all a bunch of bullshit. Ah. But Lawrence Sheeler was also involved in... He was the person who got Jack Ruby's final confession, and he, like uh, Bugliosi, he wrote a book about uh, as basically an apology for the Warren Commission. So there's a lot of people like that who are involved with the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination, who are also involved with the uh, Tate LaBianca murder investigation or uh, were part of... Uh, People involved in the trial and whatnot. The uh, yeah, it goes on and on. You start. <laughs> it always goes on and yeah. on. Yeah, but you know sometimes there's less tenuous connections. Mm-hmm. What about the mind control part of the title of uh, your book? Besides the obvious of Manson controlling mind controlling the the uh, family, the people around him. I, I remember reading in the book, and I haven't read the book since it came out, but uh, connections to um, government connections, like uh, intelligence agency connections and all that. It sounds like something May Brussel may have originally discussed in relationship to Manson. She came... Like there was more powerful things going on here, and Manson knew certain things, not because of being in the prison system, per se, or the Scientology and all that, but because there was some sort of official connection to mind control and you know getting your hands off when it got so crazy and and uh and uh distancing themselves from you know any official involvement with manson well in a how much in you know is there any i I think there's something to it the uh, i won't give the history of mk ultra you don't need to (laughs) but in uh 67 there was a safe house set up in the hate ashbury where manson was by Jolly West, the guy <laughs> whose name is infamous. Louis Joylin West, a uh, psychologist from UCLA. And so the theory there is that uh, the whole uh, CIA at one time had the largest, uh, they bought up all the acid from Sandoz. Mm-hmm. So in the early 60s, they were the one main distributor, and they were using... LSD is basically a MK Ultra experiment to test, and they had a safe house where they were bringing people in, giving them LSD. Was that the uh, the Operation Midnight Climax thing that was? Yeah, going they were on bring, with bringing hookers in and stuff hookers in, and and they were trying to see what drugs would have certain effects on people and how much they would talk, etc. And that's cool if you know you're getting acid and you're get having a hooker come in, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, the hookers would dose them because they were they were uh, contracted. So you had that the everything lines up that the Manson family 
you know, it's perfectly aligned that they could have been uh, used in that manner. Whether they were or not, there's a lot of, once again, dangling uh, strings. And actually, uh, some, some there was a book in Germany called The Manson Family Murders. That, uh, I forget the exact test tube murders dealing with the Manson family. And the whole thesis there was that they were used in this behavior modification thing. Manson, uh, when he got paroled, his parole officer was a guy named... Uh, there was a couple of them. They worked for the Haight-Ashbury Clinic. Oh, this was when he was paroled and let loose in San Francisco in 66? Yeah. And the guy was named Dr. David Smith. And basically, they were getting their funding through the National Institute of Mental Health. And that was a CIA conduit, and MKUltra was funding them. Oh, okay. And, the, and his parole officer, yeah. His parole officer was involved in that, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Demonstrably involved with that? Okay. <laughs> Doing what? He was basically uh, his parole officer shrinking his head. He wrote up a long paper that uh, showed up in the, uh, remember the journal Psychedelic Review? Yeah. I think it was yeah. called. One of those he was writing about the Manson family a couple of years before the murders and how he was taken with this charismatic uh, figure so. And there's also the thing that he had COINTELPRO. Right. You guys probably don't know what the hell we're talking about, but they were basically getting agent provocateurs and infiltrating the different movements, the Black Panthers, the Yippies, and so on. Underground press, all that. So it's claimed that Manson was an FBI informant and uh, he was an infiltrator and that they were using him. And there was some, there was a guy named Preston Guillory who's, as a PI firm here in LA, I think he's yeah. kind of he busted that story with uh, Mae Russell back 30 years ago that there was like a hands-off thing. They were kind of watching Manson, using him. They were hoping he'd stir up some shit with the Black Panthers. Oh, I see. Because that was going on. Then when the Tate LaBianca murders came down, it was like this fucker's out of control. We got to rein him back in. Let's play some more shit here before we okay. run out of time. All right. <laughs> Well, we got half an hour. How much shit do you have? I got a lot of stuff. I got all kinds of shit. Let's play uh, the Flying Sorcerers again. Okay. Since we want to make sure we get that in. <laughs> this is Joe's song. Joe, you have something to say about this song? Yeah, well, again, I think it's more of a collaboration of the, the band Flying Sorcerers. Um, I did write the lyrics, and it was uh, sort of inspired by... Uh, alleged quote from Charles Manson the night he sent uh, everybody out on August the 9th to do his Tate murder and that, that whole that whole August the 9th murders and uh, he told them allegedly to if they were going to do something to do it well and leave something witchy and that's the title of the song is leave something witchy and um, I think that was part of Manson's MO was to lead people to what he wanted them to do but not to give them a direct order to do something like specific but he, he almost like tell do what you know I want you to do like I don't have to tell you how to do it you, you you know what I want so that's sort of the context of the lyrics of the song is he leads them to the edge of what comes next and leaves them to do something witchy 
as he handed them a knife, too. Yes, <laughs> and a gun, huh? There you go.
Wow, listen to the sustain on that. That's witchy. That was witchy. The title? The sustain. Oh, yeah. It was witchy. It was. <laughs> yeah, the title is Leave Such Something I'm Witchy. I'm just saying the sustain was witchy. <laughs> <laughs> but the title was Leave Something Witchy and... Uh, Joe, who sang uh, lead vocals on that, wrote the lyrics and the song. He's going to tell you about the event at the Soap Plant Wacko on August the 9th at 6 o'clock, right? It begins at 6. We think it's going to be at 6. Adam will do a um, PowerPoint presentation about his book and um costume contest there'll be a costume contest uh i think uh, they're going to have a liquor license so that'll be, be plenty cool of booze too. to drink plenty of rock and roll flying sorcerers will play uh following adam's powerpoint presentation it's going to be very cool yep. come on out august the 9th soap plant wacko la luz de jesus, jesus. in hollywood california <laughs> go doyers <laughs> Yeah, they won today. And as, as uh, Adam pointed out, it's they won today, not we won today. We were not there. We were not involved Fuck in any the way. doyers, Mark. <laughs> Uh-oh, now we got him drunk and on on the subject of baseball. So the Laker, the Lakers, though, they're cool. <laughs> they got the Zen Master. <laughs> oh, Phil Jackson, the Zen Master. Hey, I got, there's another cool thing here. Whoops. I want you to play. And this is from the 9-11-67 demos that happened at Universal Studios. And it's the track that's called Interview. And it's basically Charlie rambling. Well, that's always good. And you know it, what? I, go ahead. Well, it's, it's funny. These. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's always good when Charlie, yeah, that guy's a poet. Come down off the space shuttle, Charlie. Hippie, hippie psychedelic, psychotic poet boy. And, but uh, you listen to some of these, him this rambling during these universal ses- sessions, and he's much younger, you know, and there's this fucking, it's it's just a different vibe than, I'll, we'll play a, uh, another little uh, clip from a uh, par- parole speech he did years later, but it's just interesting to hear Manson as a young man. In his 30s, actually. Yeah, probably, I think he was 34, and this was during those... Uh, Demo sessions at Universal. It's the what year was this interview track? Nine, Nine eleven sixty seven. Okay. <laughs> is this it? You're born with the survival instinct to be selfish. Oh, even though J.C. said spare the rod and spoil the child. Okay. So the first thing that happens, man, is they start giving you their thoughts and making things out of you that they want to make out of. And by the time you reach thirty, exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. 
You're a free soul standing in a cage who has to die because he was taught that he has to die and he has to eat because he was taught that, he, that everyone must eat. Why, you'd be insane. And they said, don't go insane. And they said, let me help you. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You read a lot? No, I don't read at all. You don't read at all? Uh -uh. I was lucky. <laughs> I got, I got out of the race early. <laughs> <laughs> I was so I was so smart when I was a kid that I learned that I was dumb fast. That's, <laughs> That's the way it is with everyone, not just me. <laughs> You're taught that you can't. They, they even teach you the words. They give you the words. Take all the words away. And don't think in right and wrong, just think in truth. Mm -hmm. All the answers are there. Sound of one hand clapping is simply the sound of one hand clapping. There are no big answers. All the big colleges that we've been building is taking people the other way. The smartest people in the world are really the most cut off. Mm -hmm. It's this common people, man, with the soul. It really moves, you know. And it in other words, you, you think that maybe progress is not good for mankind? Progress? There's no such thing as progress. There's only change. You dig a hole in the ground and you build up a city and you fight a war and you call it progress. <laughs> you call it change. You call it change. And it's a beautiful game and it's a perfect game. And whoever wants to continue playing general and going out and killing himself, well, my goodness, I wouldn't want to play that game myself. But if they want to play it, I'd love them for it. If they want to go over there and kill each other. You know, the only reason they're over there is because they want to be. They can use any excuse and they can say, but, but, and, maybe, uh, but it boils down to, man, you know, just one thing. As long as there's hate in your heart, there'll be hate in the world. Mm -hmm. You can't fight for peace, and you cannot capture freedom. <laughs> and it's just a simple little old thing, man, that any little baby could figure out if we didn't put cancer in his mind. Then love is the, is the total answer? If someone beats you with a whip and you love the whip <laughs> what's he doing <laughs> he's making a fool out of himself <laughs> old jc said turn the other cheek <laughs> it's a simple thing man you know <laughs> it's heaven right here jack right here <laughs> i was listening to part of what charlie said uh Adam kept saying, "Shut up! The man is man is preaching. The man is rapping. The man is rapping." <laughs> but the funny, you, you know, it, it, and the, th the thing he said here was that imagine you're on acid and you're a 17 year old girl. That's probably the heaviest thing you've ever heard in your life, man. But then again, if anybody said anything halfway not stupid and you're on acid and you're 17, it would sound really important. Well, he was 34, so he got out and he could. Play a guitar somewhat half-assed, and he could rap this philosophical shit. So, yeah, if you're a young kid, then get him on acid, and it's like, whoa, that homeboy's next JC. <laughs> and Especially he, since you never went out of that 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 circle after a, after a while. What did 
you know, I found I found out one of the funniest stories associated with Manson was that uh, I can't remember. It was some 16, 17 year old girl went went and joined, and then her father got all into Charlie. He was a minister. Who was it? Which one? Oh of them? yeah, Morehouse. Dean Morehouse. Dean Morehouse. Yeah, yeah. The because uh, Charlie came over trying to calm him down, and then he realized how right Charlie was. This, the, a minister, a Christian minister, who was. Who knew Manson was nailing his daughter? He he might have been some half-assed minister. I don't know the whole background, but he is a Christian minister. Somehow Charlie met him in San Jose. He was uh, him and his tribe were going through there. Charlie met a lot of people, so they went to his house and saw his daughter there, Ruth Ann, who was like 15 years old, very fifteen, be- yeah, very beautiful young girl, and so. Uh, Eventually, she hooked up with uh, Charlie and went on the Black Magic Bus uh, Roadshow, and Reverend Dean Morehouse came after his daughter, and uh, eventually Charlie talked him down and introduced him to the Divine Sacrament, Vitamin L, Mm -hmm. and after a while, Dean Morehouse became an apostle for uh, Charlie Acidhead, and now Dean Morehouse is on the... uh, you know Megan's List? Yeah. He's on Megan's List if you go to the uh, internet as a uh, child molester. You can find his uh, picture on the web. Reverend Dean Morehouse. So he's out, but he's uh, he's publicly exposed. I mean, he's, he's out of jail. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he wouldn't be on the list, probably. Of course, that Megan's List is a pretty scary thing that yeah well that's a whole nother thing that we, you know we don't even know what we want to talk about it's not it's uh one of those um you know use it for what you want to use it for for people you want to fuck up witch hunt kind of bullshit yeah no, i don't i don't endorse that crap but yeah and he may or may not be who knows but you know who's who's he pissing off now who knows mm-hmm. um Anything else you want to play? Well, should we? Are you making me drink beer here? Should we hear a be- the Beach Boys song? Yes. That, uh, never, a, never, never learn not, not to, to love. love. That's it. And it's on that uh, the uh, data CD, you know, where you have to get in there on, look at it on your computer and do that clicky clicky thing. <laughs> Some of the a lot of the tracks here, according to this, are not named. Oh. So I don't know. Oh, you know what I can give you is a uh, CD. Never say never to always? No. Why don't you put this? uh, Let's hear never uh, say never to always. It's the Manson Girls singing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I I think I have this on my iPod, actually. Yeah, it's. uh, This is a uh, Manson composition. When was this recorded? Um, I don't know exactly, 67, 68, they were in the studio, and the girls, it was a char- song Charlie wrote, mm-hmm. and the girls sang. That always is always forever, yeah. that song? It's kind okay. of an acapella deal. Yeah. Then we'll listen to the Beach Boys, too. I'll never say never to always, I'll never say always to none, to seem is to dream. My dream, my love, cause one is one is one. For always is all is forever, cause one is one is one. We can 
beside yourself for your father. All is none, all is none, none is one. It's time to call time from behind you. The illusion has been just a dream. Valley of death and I'll find you. Now is when on a sunshine beam. Surely be no cold pain, fear, or hunger. You can see, you can see, you can see. That was Never Learn Not to Love, recorded by the Beach Boys, based on uh, Charles Manson uh, composition. Well, it was Charles Manson composition. Did he write the music, too? I mean, the, the melody. Obviously, Brian Wilson is in there doing the Beach Boy thing. I was burping. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, that came from a uh, song called Cease to Exist. Oh, yeah, that's that right. That Charlie swung a deal with. He was good friends with Dennis Wilson. They lived at Dennis Wilson's house and all that stuff and Dennis Wilson probably fucked most of his girls but uh, Dennis Wilson got the rights to that song Cease to Exist and 
that seemed like kind of a severe or weird title, so they changed it to Never Learn Not to Love, and it uh, that's on the 2020 album. And I'm not sure exactly. There's some story that, like, uh, Wilson gave Manson a motorcycle or something for that tune. Later, Charlie wasn't happy, said the Beatles butchered his holy lyrics. Beach Boys. And, did I say the Beatles? Mm-hmm. I meant the Beach Boys. Butchered his it's lyrics. It's that demon yeah. rum that you've got there, or whatever it is. <laughs> so anyway, that's a pretty uh, interesting curiosity. It was like the uh, B-side of a single. I forget what it was the Beach Boys were had put out at that period. So Manson was on the... Uh, B-side of a 45 record. Was he credited as a songwriter? No. No? Yeah. Dennis, because it came out post-69, huh? Dennis, nah, nah, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it came out before the murders. Oh, okay. But uh, I guess they wouldn't even have released it, whether his name was on it or not, after the murders. Hey, hey! <laughs> Dennis Wilson was credited as a songwriter. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a long... Uh, <laughs> association with the uh, Beach Boys, and we talked about the uh, Universal Studio Sessions, but actually Manson, this guy's taking photos, so it's hard to talk. Uh, Manson actually recorded in uh, Brian Wilson's home studio during that period, 68 or so, and eventually Brian Wilson kicked out Manson and his bunch because he thought they were a bunch of Smelly hippies. Yeah, freeloaders and peeing all over the toilet and making it icky and get his wife. <laughs> yeah, his wife was really pissed off. Yeah. About being pissed on. So, you know, that's that whole thing. You talk about the uh, covering up. There was like an area of silence put over be, over or <clears throat> to like cover up all those Manson family connections to the rock music industry and right. whatnot. Uh, and apparently they went pretty deep. You know, Terry uh, Melcher, at least uh, according to uh, Manson, was ready to uh, produce an album of his, you know, and make him a big star. So, of course... <laughs> you're... <laughs> I made a blah, 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 blah. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm doing the stuff that Symbol at, uh, at uh, Adam here. And so that could, uh, you know, possibly you could attribute that to the Manson family murders. That it was retaliation because Terry Melcher didn't produce his big concept album that was going to bring about Helter Skelter and change the world. You're, oh, a, you're, so a, you're a fucking skeptic, though, about all that. So I'm a skeptic Excuse about everything. Excuse me. No, I, I have people on the show so they can say what they want. But apparently apparently, you don't know me well enough to let me go blip, blip. <laughs> I was doing it at Manson, man. Oh, okay. Not you. I'm sorry. Sounds like, you know, an excuse he came up with just to, uh, you know, to cover up whatever the hell else he was pissed off about, either the drug deal or whatever it might be. You know, it's funny. I was telling you about that Blood and Dumplings tour out in um, uh, San Gabriel Valley. Uh, we went by, uh, it's, uh, it was a tour, we went on a bus, a bus tour to different murder sites. Uh, oh, okay. I've heard about these guys. Yeah, and uh, one of the places they took us by was the, I think the garage or the house where Stephen Parent worked or lived. 
mm-hmm. and nobody knows that name. He was the first They're, victim of the of the besides uh, Hinman of the Manson family, he, and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Poor fucking schmuck. He was just like a uh, 17-year-old, 16-year-old kid, yeah. Yeah, he had a stereo business, car stereo or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was driving out the uh, gate at the lobby. At, I want keep on to say the LaBianca at the Tate uh, house and happened to uh, run into Tex so Watson awesome. and the girls jumping over the fence and filling them full of lead. And that was all that was written for uh, Stephen Parent. Yeah, and nobody ever hears about him. Poor Steve. He was just a kid, dumb kid in a bad place. Yeah, wrong place. That's kind of how I feel about Bobby Beausoleil. And he wasn't even there to see the famous people. He was going to see the caretaker taking care of his stereo. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with the famous people there. Yeah, yeah, it's fucked up. Okay, we got three minutes. You don't have to come up with much more. However, why don't you reannounce how people can get in touch with you, possibly? Um, Let's. And uh, I don't think I gave the rundown of all the gigs I'm. Oh, be please do then. Doing out here, of course. We uh, mentioned Soap Plat Wacko on August 9th, <laughs> at six o'clock to nine p.m. With the rock and roll show, Flying Sorcerers going to have a costume contest. I'm going to do a PowerPoint lecture, people. <laughs> We're going to have drinking. We're going to be some fine-looking women. <laughs> then on uh, the next night, this will be pretty cool. I'm trying to hold it together, but I haven't, I, I've only had a couple of beers. The, the Museum of Death. I'll be doing the PowerPoint lecture. and That's uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, right near the Pantages, about the a Hollywood block east. Boulevard, that's a good song by uh, Ray Davies and the Kinks. Yes, on um, Everyone's a Star. Everybody's a dreamer. <laughs> anyway, so that'll be on the uh, 10th. Then on the 11th, I'll be at uh, Book Soup, which should get my act together here. That's a pretty high-profile deal you've had. Yeah, Al- I told uh, Adam earlier that I've seen two other people there, Timothy Leary and Hunter S. Thompson. Fucking Al Gore has been there, yeah. who, who I adore. <laughs> you, ago, you adore Gore? Yeah. And then on... Uh, no, this is a different Gore, though. This is fucking Al Gore. Huh? But Book Al Soup Gore? is on Sunset Boulevard, right across from where the old Tower Records used to be. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's at the. It's If you're on the Sunset Strip, it's where it takes that little bend before it heads off into uh, Beverly Hills. Uh, at, um, uh, what's the name of that... Greg has the LA knowledge. I yeah. Yeah. And then there's another one in Phoenix, Arizona on the thirteenth. Once I get the starting date of August 9th and I'm good to go, I can Yeah. That'll be at Perihelion Arts and it's kind of like so I think Pl- Holloway Drive is the is the street that goes up to Sunset that heads right next to Book Soup. Uh, okay. But you can look. You can find out by looking it up. Go ahead. Uh, appearance in Arizona on the 13th. Perihelion Arts, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And it's kind of like uh, Soap Plant Wacko. It'll be the uh, same deal. No band there, unless you guys want to show up. And I'll be doing the PowerPoint lecture. And so that's the deal, folks. Philly. Yeah, there's possibly another one in Philadelphia, but it ain't nailed down, so... So the book is uh, Shadow Over Santa Susana. The Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos, available through Creation uh, Books, Amazon.com. 
look that up and uh, look at the new edition because that's um, it's the concentrated version of the uh, 2000. When did it come out? 2001. 2001. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Because I, I had that I had that book in 2001. One girlfriend before this, and I got in a fight with her and threw um, the book at a tree. I wanted you to tell that story. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, sacrificing my holy uh, text for. Well, if it's my book in my arm, management. I could have had any <laughs> book in my arm, except for one that was probably worth more than $100, and I probably wouldn't have thrown it in the well, tree. As I was throwing it, I remember thinking, I can get another one of these from Adam, so I'm just going to throw it at the that, tree, that, that says and it so- broke in half. That says something that you're actually walking around with it. That I was. It was under my arm. It was 2 in the morning. I had it under my arm. My girlfriend said something horrible to me, and I threw the book. Not at her. I threw it at a tree, at a palm tree. And uh, broke Ow. the book in half, broke its back. And um, so now I have to get a new copy from you of the old one, which is going to be worth a lot, folks. So try and order I some of the so. old copies, too. The next host is here. The next host is here, and we're stepping on his time by a minute here. So you want to play something else, or you want me to play Mechanical Man? Whatever you got keyed up there. I, I've got keyed up Mechanical as, Man. As we say in the business, is that what they say in the business? Queued up or keyed up? <laughs> You're keyed up. I, I've got something queued up. I'm Radio Mysterioso. Next week, no Radio Mysterioso because I will be picking up somebody from the airport um, and out in the desert, hopefully uh, flying a uh, hang glider trike. So we'll see. But um, the week after that, uh, who knows? Uh, Skylar said she might come in and talk about uh, uh, Lo-Fi. Yeah, League of Western Forty and Indeterminists. Uh, intermediatists, that's it, not indeterminists. I thought it was indeterminists, which I thought was great. But no, it's intermediatists. Yeah. Uh, look it up, uh, Lofi, L-O-W-F-I. Uh, and that might be that week, or it might not, I do not know. And I think in case I will be here, I will not be here next week. Uh, you may, uh, uh, antenna, I'm sorry, radio antenna will be here next week obviously and uh you can come in early and take four hours if you like or however long your show is i don't know add two hours to it and uh here's um another charles manson um composition called mechanical man on radio mysterioso thanks for listening uh this will be up at radiomysterioso.com within a couple of days here and uh we'll see you in a couple weeks thanks for listening and good night I am a mechanical man. A mechanical man, and I do the best I can because I have my family. I am a mechanical boy. I am my mother's joy. And I play in the backyard sometimes. I am a mechanical boy.
Where are you? Cause my monkey 